The National Museum of Funeral History presents The Final Curtain Never Closes. I'm your host, Genevieve Keeney Vasquez, the president and CEO of the museum. People often ask what I do, and I tell them that I am the president of the National Museum of Funeral History. Interesting enough, sometimes they say, the Museum of Fine Arts? No, it's the Museum of what history? And I always have to tell them it's funeral history. For some reason, that word funeral just does not resonate with people when I first say it. But I have to tell you, once people visit our museum, the word funeral comes into perspective. The, the museum is fascinating. If you ever want to understand what goes on behind the curtain of preparing the dead, taking care of your most precious loved one, the National Museum of Funeral History is the place for you. So let's talk about what's behind that final curtain. The museum goes into several different exhibits. We have 17 permanent exhibits on display. We talk about the Pope. We talk about the presidents. We talk about the funerals of the famous and our thanks for the memories. And of course, we have a really nice, fun exhibit, the jazz funerals. That's very uplifting. You can see a fascinating collection of hearses. You could learn more about customs and rituals from different parts of the world. You can see the Dio de los Muertos exhibit and understand all of the colors that go into their celebrations in November. Why do they celebrate the dead? What's the importance of remembering those who have passed before us? And of course, one of our most recent exhibits, the history of cremation. Cremation has become uh, a practice that you see more often now uh, for the final burial disposition. And so many people wanted to understand more about cremation and what goes on in the actual cremation process. This exhibit does just that. It'll transport you back to Washington, Pennsylvania, the first crematory in North America, and walk you through some of the practices and helps you to understand some of the things you probably never thought possible. So the National Museum of Funeral History. Why do I want to go there? Can I bring my children there? Of course you can. Children are very perceptive. They actually understand the concept of death as early as the age of three. They understand absence. And when somebody passes away, they become absent in our life. So I always tell parents, bring your children. It's that opportunity for you to have that hard conversation or that opportunity to help them understand more about what death is, what death looks like, and what it means to us in life. So yes, this place is family friendly. It has a lot to offer. There's a lot of curious questions. You know that concept that you can't take it with you? Well, I'm here to tell you, you actually can. We have a casket that is actually lined with money. Uh, the gentleman was a collector of money, and he believed that if he died, he could take it with him, so he put it into the lining of his casket. So that is actually on display here. We also have a very interesting triple casket, and there's actually a sad story that goes along with it, and so I challenge you to come to the museum to understand the story and understand why a triple casket was made in the first place. Another one of our very interesting exhibits here at the museum, it's very colorful, it's fun, and people ask all the time, are those really caskets? Do people actually get buried in them? 
And I said, no, actually they're coffins. Uh, There is a difference between a coffin and a casket. And I will tell that to you in just a moment. Back to those fun, colorful coffins. They are actually carved out of wood and they are made to represent what the person did in their life or what they hope to achieve in their afterlife. They're fantasy coffins from Ghana, West Africa. Uh, We have one of the largest collections of these fantasy coffins outside of Ghana, and they're located here at the museum. Uh, The children always like to, to see those pieces. They're very fascinating and works of art. So back to that question, what is the difference between a coffin and a casket? Sometimes as I talk about the museum and I go through and I'm speaking to one of the burial containers, sometimes I take a pause because I have to think to myself, am I talking about a casket or am I talking about a coffin? Because I too have to stop and say, does that lid come off in its entirety or is it hinged like a door? Uh, So that's truly what's going on in my brain when I'm trying to determine how to properly label this burial container. Uh, So again, a coffin, the lid comes off in its entirety, and it tends to be a a shape different than rectangular. And a casket is rectangular in shape and only opens on one side and is hinged like a door. So that is one of the fun facts that you can uh, learn here at the museum. You want to know some more fun facts? Let's talk about a dead ringer and saved by the bell. Those are some fun terms that uh, we sometimes... uh, don't realize where they come from. During the 14th and 15th century, people were being buried alive and they didn't know this until later on in life when they began to uh, utilize the old cemetery spaces for actual land. And they were preparing the land for building and sometimes would unearth a coffin and see the claw marks inside. Realizing that they were burying people alive, they had to come up with something to help them determine whether somebody did get buried alive and actually woke up later on. So they would tie a string to their finger, run it up through the lid of the coffin and through the earth, attach it to the bell on the top of their burial plot. So if they were to wake up and start scratching, they would begin to pull on the string, unbeknownst to them, tied to their finger and ring the bell. Therefore, they were saved by the bell. And if their bell never rang, they were a dead ringer. So interesting enough, people did not know how to determine true death back in those days. They didn't have the technology we have today, stethoscopes, EKGs, EEGs, things to actually tell us that somebody is truly dead. And that's another reason why they have the wake, because they're going to prove that you are true in fact dead and not going to wake up. During that time period, also, that's when flowers had a purpose in in the funeral industry. They were there to help mask the smell of death. So as people would come by during the three-day wake to pay their last respects, they would be greeted with the pleasant smell and fragrance of the flowers rather than the pungent smell of death. Nowadays, we still use flowers at funerals, but the flowers are more of a sign of, of sympathy and letting people know that you are loved and we are thinking about you. Another fun term that comes out of the time period of Saved by the Bell is the graveyard shift. We all know today that the graveyard shift is when you work at night. But back in that time period, when they didn't have street lamps in the cemeteries, when the sun would set, everyone would retreat home. And in the nights, they would need somebody to stay in the graveyard to listen for the bells to ring if somebody were to wake up. So the graveyard shift 
was for the person who worked in the graveyard at night to listen for the bells. And now we know the graveyard shift to be working at night. So a big part of our profession in caring for the dead is embalming. Embalming is the process of introducing a chemical into the body to retard decomposition. Embalming came to America during the Civil War. Dr. Thomas Holmes, who is known as the father of American embalming, was the one who created embalming fluid to use on the battlefields to help with preserving the bodies so they can be shipped back home to their families for burial, as well as to disinfect the bodies because disease was running rapid on the battlefield and they needed to conserve the fighting strength of the soldiers. So the embalming fluid, which contained arsenic at that time, which is a poison we all know today, the embalmers had to be very, very careful in handling the chemical. The embalmers, believe it or not, were surgeons initially because they understood the natural makeup of the human body. They understood how to utilize the normal circulatory system to introduce the chemical, inject in the artery and drain from the vein. And they would pump the chemical into the body just as the heart pumps the blood through our body. So the embalming process was very important during that time period. Embalming is still used today to help retard decomposition as well as kind of preserve our loved ones for that funeral that might not happen for a week or two. We're a transportable society now. And if someone dies today, their funeral might not be able to take place for a week or two. So embalming is a process to help preserve the body so that when the funeral does happen and a viewing does take place, that your loved one is more aesthetically appearing. So embalming came to America during the Civil War, but recorded history tells us that the Egyptians were our first embalmers. Anubis is the Egyptian god of embalming. He's the half-jekyll, half-man that you see in the hieroglyphics. He is the actual embalmer, and it was his duty and job to prepare the bodies for their final burial. Now, interesting, I was telling you that embalming now, in our time, is introducing a chemical into the body for preservation. The Egyptians is just the opposite. They perform practices that withdraw the fluids from our body. If you had a lot of money, that process could be done with the lye because that was an expensive product to be submerged into in order to rapidly withdraw the fluids from your body. If you weren't going to be embalmed with lye, then they would wrap you with linen cloth. They would also put incense and other uh, spices into the cavity in order to help with the smell and preservation and the drying out process. They would also remove different organs from the cavity of the body and place them in the canopanic jars. And each canopanic jar would hold a different organ. Interesting enough, the brain had no significance in the Egyptian time period, and they would withdraw the brain from the nasal cavity and discard it. However, it was your heart that was the most important organ in your entire body. And your heart was weighed on the scale of judgment against an ostrich feather. Now we all know today that heart weighs way more than the ostrich feather, but if your heart weighed lighter than that ostrich feather, that was representative that you were a good person in life and therefore granted passage into the afterlife. And Toth, who is the beaked bird-like character in the hieroglyphics, he would inscribe your name into the Book of Dead, thus granting you passage into the afterlife. So you ask what happens if it weighs heavier than the ostrich feather? Hmm. Well, unfortunately, that means that you were a bad person in life, 
therefore you were condemned to hell. Well, the concept of hell. But Sorbeck, the crocodile of the Nile, was anxiously waiting to devour your heart. He was a little hungry. But true story. I mean, seriously, if you look at the hieroglyphics, that is the story that is being told by the Egyptians. That is what they believed. We still believe in a heaven and a hell. Most people do, depending upon your religion. But it just goes to show that even in the Egyptian time period, they believed that our spirits went somewhere. So as you could see, the museum has a lot to offer and a lot to see. A lot of times I tell people if they ask, how long does it take to get through the museum? I always tell people to have a good one to two hours to see everything. But if you are a historian and you love to read, you better schedule the rest of the afternoon off. And the museum does have docents available to help you better understand the exhibits and give you a little backstory. Just as I did here on this podcast, I gave you a little backstory on some of the exhibits that you're going to see. So that was a general overview of what the museum has to offer. There is so much more in the museum. There's, I, I just can't cover it all. Plus, there's things in there that are probably going to be of great interest to you that I haven't even had a chance to review. But this is the first podcast about the National Museum of Funeral History, and we have many more planned. Look forward to a podcast where you will actually talk to some of the professionals in the Cremation Association of North America. And then I'm going to talk with some of the people that I've worked with in our upcoming exhibit, The Most Famous Burial of All Time, The Shroud of Turin. Ever wonder what it takes to be in the funeral profession, to be able to care for the dead? Well, look forward to a podcast where I will actually be sitting down with Cody, the president of Commonwealth Institute of Funeral Service, and myself, a graduate of Commonwealth, and we will discuss our journey and tell you what it takes to become a funeral professional. So we have a vast collection of the vehicles that have been historically used to carry the dead to their final resting place. They're known as hearses. We have horse-drawn and motorized, and we will have an in-depth look and interview with one of the avid car collectors of these hearses. We will also talk about headstones and all of the interesting features that you will see on a headstone and what do they mean. So thank you for joining me today on this podcast, the first of many. I look forward to what the future holds now for our listeners. And I hope that you will share this episode and our future episodes with family and friends. We look forward to any feedback you have to offer by giving us a review on Apple or Spotify. And we hope that you will join us for a virtual tour of the museum at www.nmfh.org or you are welcome to go onto the website and see a little bit more of the images that I just spoke about. And if you would like, please reach out to the museum at contact at nmfh.org. Thank you for listening. And always remember, any day above ground is a good one.